Welcome to the Denver Community Church Teaching Podcast. Whether you attend our 10 a.m. gathering on Sundays here in Denver, are just checking us out, or listen every week from far away, our hope is that by engaging with Scripture, together we can explore and participate in the life of Jesus so that we can be a healing presence in our world. As you listen to this teaching, allow it to begin a conversation between you and God, you and the Bible, and you and your community. If you have any questions about DCC or this teaching, you can email us at info at denverchurch.org. To get connected or find out more about what's going on in and around our community, you can visit our website at denverchurch.org or download our app by searching Denver Community Church in the App Store. And if you want to financially support the healing work we are doing as we invest in our community while setting aside 20% of every dollar given to support our partners locally and around the globe, you can text the words Denver Church to 77977. That's Denver Church to 77977. Know that spaces like ours can only exist through the radical generosity of those who call DCC home. Thank you for being here. Let's get to the teaching. Well, good morning. Good to see you on uh, what feels like spring finally. Yeah. The people who are really excited about that aren't here. You guys love God more, apparently, so much so that you're forsaking his natural world. It just started here and like, it's going downhill. Good to see all of you. If you have your Bibles, you can turn to Luke chapter 9. Uh, it's page 723 in the Bible, but that's beneath the chair in front of you or near you. And um, if you'd like to follow along in your device, you can do that as well. Well, we're going to read some verses that I think are actually somewhat familiar, especially if you've grown up in and around the church. Now, right before these words, if you were with us last week, our friend Michelle came and taught on the confession that Peter makes. When Jesus says, who do people say that I am? They respond, well, some say you're John the Baptist, some say you're Elijah, some say you're one of the prophets from long ago who's risen from the dead and come back. And then he says, but who do you say that I am? And that's when Peter says, you are the Messiah, son of the living God. And then it says this in Luke chapter 21. Jesus strictly warned them not to tell this to anyone. And he said, speaking of himself, the son of man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. Then he said to them all, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross daily and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will save it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world and yet lose or forfeit their very self or their very soul? Whoever is ashamed of me and my words, the Son of Man will be ashamed of them when he comes into his glory and in the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. Truly I tell you, some who are standing here will not taste death before they see the kingdom of God. Now how many of you have heard this, these words before about picking up your cross? Many of you. Now this is where the terrible phrase, this is my cross to bear comes from, from these words. You know, someone's like, oh, Deborah at work every Tuesday with her tuna salad sandwich and pickles. It's disgusting. And she chews with her mouth open. 
and it smelled, I guess this is my cross to bear, just like really trivial stuff like that, is mostly how we talk about it. And I point this out because even if you haven't grown up in the church, you've probably heard the term cross to bear. It's interesting, with all of the famous deaths that we've had throughout history, the only one that people seem to know what we're talking about when we just named a form of death, the crucifixion, people roundly know, probably talking about Jesus. And I point this out because sometimes we become so familiar with things, we begin to lose meaning when we come to particular verses. We, we come here this morning to these verses, and we have a particular understanding, especially about the cross, because the cross is central to the Christian faith. And so we have grown up hearing about the cross. If you grew up in the church, you learned about the cross. And what can happen in an unconscious way is we can hear these words or read these words, and we look back through 2,000 years of church history and church teaching and geopolitical realities and everything else, and we have an understanding then of the cross and we import that into the story, and then we begin hearing Jesus' words through a particular filter. I'm often asked questions over email or after one of our gatherings by many of you about how to read the Bible. Here's one hint, and we're gonna practice it this morning. Forget everything you know, and put yourself in the place of the people who are experiencing the stories and living in those places. Do the work, get back to understanding what's happening in the geopolitical realities, what's happening in the world, what was their faith and their religion like, how did they see the world, were they wealthy, were they poor? And, and so this morning, here's what I'm going to ask you to do, it's not going to be that easy, but just pretend. I'm going to ask you to forget everything you know or have been taught to believe about the cross. Just pretend you've never heard of it. If somebody has a cross necklace on, just be like, what's that? Like, just pretend you've never, ever heard anything about this. And the reason I'm asking you to suspend your beliefs for just a few minutes is because I want to ask the question, what did those who heard Jesus' words think about the cross? What was their understanding about the cross? Because Jesus tells them something very specific. Pick that up. What is it that they believed? Well, what they believed in that time was informed by Rome, who were the ones that actually were responsible for the cross. Now, we know that about 600 years before Jesus lived, the Persians were the first ones that began crucifying people. But 600 years later, Rome perfected it. As a matter of fact, there's history that shows us that the Roman soldiers who practiced crucifixion were trained on how to crucify people. They could do it quickly, and, and they could do it in a way where it was sure that the person was going to stay alive for a while before they died. They even began having, quote, fun with it, as one writer put it. They would put people in different positions on the crosses just to see, like, what would happen, kind of experimenting on human bodies. Now, if you're not familiar with what the process of crucifixion was like, it was reserved for those who were considered to be seditious or considered heretics. And they'd be considered heretics because they would say that Caesar 
is not the son of God, which was one of his titles. And so if you were a heretic or if you were seditious or you were accused of treason, meaning you did not support Rome and all of their efforts to rule the world, then you could be condemned to crucifixion. And you would be taken to a barracks, you'd be stripped down naked, and then it would start with a flogging. Now, a flog was a whip of about two to three feet long. It had a braided leather, and in the braids, they put in stones and bits of bone so that when they would hit you, it would initially bruise your back and soften it up, but the bone would begin to rip the flesh off of your bones. They actually had a rule, a law in place that you could only hit somebody 39 times with a flog because they realized if you hit them 40 or more, they will likely die. That's how brutal this punishment was. Then, once you were sufficiently beaten, they would bring you out of the barracks and they would make you pick up the cross, which is called a patibulum, and it was just the cross beam, just the top part of the cross, sometimes weighing as much as 100 to 200 pounds, and you would be forced to carry that, and they would parade you through the streets completely and totally naked as a way of shaming you. And you would be walking past your townsfolk, your family, your friends, with this whole thing on your back. And they would march you out toward poles, upright poles that had been already pre-planted, sticking out of the ground. They would lay you down. They'd either nail your wrist to this uh, crossbeam or tie your wrist to them. And then they would put it up on the pole. And then they would tie or nail your feet to the upright pole. And then they would just leave you to die. Now, I know all of us have been influenced by Christian art at one level or another, and for that, I'm very sorry, because oftentimes Christian art shows like the cross like way up high, like 35 feet off the ground, but part of the torture of crucifixion was that if your feet weren't nailed in place or tied in place, you actually could have stood up, meaning that you were eye level with everyone who walked past you, and they would leave you there sometimes four days, because it would take days for you as the crucified victim to die, because the death was typically one of two things, blood loss, or you would end up dying by asphyxiating. And then when you were dead, they left the bodies on the cross, and wild birds and wild dogs and other animals would come, and they would eat up the flesh on the body. And eventually, as a final act of desecration, soldiers would rip the body, typically just the bones, off the cross, kind of throw them out wherever was close to the cross, and just let you basically deteriorate into the soil. And the reason that was desecrating is because to not bury someone in that day and age was a disgrace. So the question is, like, why do all of that? Well, because it was a, det a deterrent. All crucifixions were done publicly. Those upright poles would be along major thoroughfares, would be outside the gates of a city where people came and went. Because Rome wanted to be sure there was as many spectators as possible when it came to crucifixion. They wanted everyone to see it. They wanted you to walk by. They wanted you to witness the suffering. They wanted you to smell the rotting flesh. They wanted you to see the blood dripping off the victim as they were paraded through the streets because what it said to everyone was, this is what happens when you go against Caesar, when you go against Rome. Don't forget who holds the power over your life 
and over your death. Day after day after day, if you lived near a major city, you would walk out and you would see these upright poles. Sometimes there would be a rotting corpse on it. Sometimes it would be just bones. Day after day, you were told by Rome, don't forget whose reign you live beneath. This is what would have been in the minds of those who heard Jesus talk about picking up the cross. Uh, what would go through your mind if on your way home today you were driving by upright poles that were used for executions for people who were considered enemies of the state? I mean, I'm sure you'd feel some sort of revulsion if you had ever seen this horrific practice. But what else might be stirring up inside you? What about if one day as you're walking on these roads toward Jerusalem for a pilgrimage fest festival and you're walking by the upright poles, one of your children who's finally old enough to see something that looks interesting says to you, what are all the poles for? Oh, they're for, what do you say? They're for bad people? Do you risk telling them about the evil of Rome? Because if you do that, you actually now become a candidate for crucifixion. What do you say to your kids? And if you've ever been around children, you know kids never ask just one question. Like even if they say, can I have a cookie? And you're like, no, why? Oh my God, you and the whys, what? And by the way, for every parent who's like, you know what, I'm not gonna be the parent that says, I'm the parent, that's why. Yes, you will. <laughs> and every parent sitting here is like, Yep, you're right, 100%. So for all of you who have like these starry-eyed ideas of what you're not going to do as a parent, <laughs> oh, good luck. Kids never ask just one question. So what, why is there a body up there? Why are there bones scattered along near the poles? What do you say? What mixture of emotions is coming up in you? Disgust? Fear? Confusion? Maybe moments of terror. You see, all those emotions that you're feeling inside that you, and you don't know how to actually speak to your kid about it, this is exactly what Rome wants you to feel. This is their propaganda. This is their boot that they have firmly on the neck of every country that they've occupied, which at the point that Jesus was alive was really most of the then known world. Crucifixion, the cross, said to you, do not forget who holds the power of life and death. And it said it to everyone in every Roman province. And in the midst of this, Jesus says, if you want to be my disciple, any of you, pick up your cross, deny yourself, and follow me. Given what they knew about the cross, how many of them were like, sounds like a plan? How many of them do you think went home and said, oh, this is my cross to bear? <laughs> what was going through their minds? Because what Jesus was saying was, hey, pick up the cross beam, pick up the patabulum, and walk it to one of those poles that you are forced to walk by and put yourself up on it. I mean, those words would have sounded like absolute and total nonsense. So why would Jesus actually say this 
to a group of people around him. If the only thing that they knew about the cross was that it was an instrument of torture used to rule and reign and instill fear in the citizens of the empire. Well, maybe what Jesus was saying was this, hey, you know what you need to do? Stop letting Rome rule your life in the way that they're ruling. Stop letting their fear tactics and their terrorism and everything else, that stop letting that rule you. I know you're afraid of it. I know we've all seen it. But as Jesus says in Matthew chapter 10, don't be afraid of the people that can kill the body but can't touch your soul. Stop letting them have rule over you. Stop letting fear rule over you. Stop letting this evil power rule over you. Stop listening to their lie that they hold the power of life and death. No, God and God alone holds the power of life and death. You have nothing to be afraid of. Shannon Kirshner, in speaking about this passage, says this. Take up your cross, Jesus said, and stop worshiping fear and death as your God's. Take up your cross and follow me. Take up that horrible cross as a sign that you believe in the life-giving power of God more than you believe in the death-dealing power of fear. Take up that cross and see for yourselves the empty threat it represents. For God is the one who holds your life, not the empire. God is the one who will walk with you through death, not the empire. God is the one who will give you new life, not the empire. God is the one under whose reign and under whose power you live and move and have your being, not the empire. God alone is the one to whom you belong. Stop being so afraid. Now, I imagine that if we were there and we did not have the viewpoint of the cross that we have today, but had the viewpoint of the cross of those present, We might say something like, okay, Jesus, but can we at least acknowledge it's a pretty effective deterrent? I mean, can we at least acknowledge that, like, we've seen this. We know what happens to people that go against Rome. And what about all the people who do what Rome wants? I mean, just look at them. Look at the houses they're living in. Look at the clothing that they're wearing. Look at the schools that their kids go to. They seem to be doing just fine. As a matter of fact, I'd say I think they're living pretty comfortably. Maybe this is what Jesus is talking about when he says, what good does it do for you to gain the whole world but forfeit your soul? You see, Rome had actually gained the entire world at this point. And they did it because from a military perspective, they were more advanced technologically and strategically than any army that had lived before them. If Rome was bearing down on your country, the best thing you could do is surrender as soon as possible so that you would limit the number of casualties that happen from your people. And when Rome arrived on your doorstep and they put that sword out and said to you, say, Caesar is Lord, most people went, okay, Caesar's Lord, whatever you want. Because to not say that meant crucifixion. And so most people in the Roman Empire did what Rome wanted, sometimes against their own conscience. Ah, what is it if I tell a little bit of a lie? If I don't really meet it inside, at least I don't have to go through that. Jesus says, yeah, you can do that. 
You can actually gain the whole world in the way Rome was, but you know what? There's no soul in it. Or you can lose it all. And in doing so, you'll actually save your life. You'll rescue your life. You'll recover your soul. You'll come to yourself. You'll recognize not only who you are, but whose you are. This is the promise in it. You don't have to live according to Rome anymore. You don't have to live according to their rules, according to their philosophy. You don't have to live in fear, we might say, in under the power of fear. And if this is what Jesus is saying, then these words not only had power in that moment, but they still have power today. One of the things that I know is that to be human is to have fear. Now, it's at all different levels for us, but most of us at one time or another or in one place of our life or another, we live with fear within us. And when we're not at our best, we live under the rule and the reign of that fear, don't we? In my life, if something feels off, if I'm feeling tense or I'm feeling anxious, I begin asking myself a list of questions to try to get at whatever it is that's causing me fear. One of the first things I ask is, what am I afraid to lose? What am I afraid to lose? I had uh, a lunch a few weeks ago with somebody who was telling me about a very important relationship in their life, but they felt stuck in the relationship because they had a sense that if they don't do X, Y, and Z for this person, this person would abandon them. So this person had unrealistic expectations and always kind of leveraged the threat of abandonment over this individual I'm speaking to. And they said, I'm just afraid that if they, I don't do those things, they won't love me anymore. And I said, um, I have some bad news for you. If their love is predicated on what you do or don't do, it's not love. It's not love. What are we afraid of losing? What are you afraid of losing? Maybe it's a job. Maybe it's financial security. What are you afraid of losing? Jesus says, no, no, no. Don't let that have power over you anymore. What about, what are you, what are you hiding? What are you keeping secret? That if somebody found out about this, oh my goodness, I don't know what I would do. My life would be over. One of the most common conversations I have with people here at DCC is about their uh, growing and expanding beliefs. Oftentimes it's that they grew up in a particular tradition in a particular way and heard certain things taught and they trusted those things, but after a while, those particular things and those truths that they were taught, it's not that they're not true, but they just don't work anymore. There has to be something more. And I have these conversations with people all the time and then there's always a moment where it's like, yeah, I don't know how to talk to my family about this. I just want Thanksgiving meal to be peaceful. Or it'll be, yeah, my, my parents, they're really, really concerned about me. And so I just have chosen not to talk about it. And there's this fear of what's going to happen if I'm brutally and fully honest about what's really stirring inside. Jesus says, you don't have to live with that fear anymore. Pick up your cross. Don't let that rule you. What about this one? 
I'm sure none of us ever have this fear, this fear-driven emotion. What am I trying to prove? I mean, we live in the land of achievement, don't we? We live in a world that says, it is your right to pursue happiness. And for us, happiness is having more and more and more, more status, more wealth, more friends, better zip code, whatever it is. What drives that endless need for achievement? What is it that drives that idea of like, we're going to end up on top? Is it possible that it's rooted in a fear that if you don't achieve something, then you'll be a nobody? And Jesus says, like, don't, don't let that rule you. It's actually managing your life. You don't have to live that way anymore. Pick up that cross. Don't be afraid of people who can only kill the flesh and can't touch your soul. There's a whole other way of living other than the way the empire and every empire since has told you you're supposed to live. You don't have to live under this fear anymore. You see, the beauty of these words is that they're not, Jesus isn't saying it's easy. In fact, Jesus is an example to us that says, and if you do this, you'll probably get yourself killed, which isn't a very compelling message anymore, is it? This is why when we preach the gospel, some people are like, God's going to make you rich and famous, or God's going to bless you more than you could ever imagine, because the gospel that says, no, pick up your cross, don't let some empire tell you they have power over life and death. Trust God with that. But just know it's going to hurt. There's going to be a lot of pain. Oh, that's not trending on Twitter. I have a friend who says, if the gospel you're preaching doesn't get you killed, you're probably saying the wrong thing. Because what we're doing is we're just aligning ourselves with an easier message that the empire says, don't mess with us and you'll be fine. Jesus says, no, I'm not about fear. And here, by the way, is the subversive side of what Jesus is saying. Do you know what scared the Roman Empire more than anything? People who weren't scared of the Roman Empire. People who didn't use their tactics. What scares people in places of power who are pushing down and oppressing are people who go, I'm not afraid of you. Do your worst. You can even kill me. I don't care. Coretta Scott King talked about how her and her husband Martin would sit at the dining room table and talk about when he was executed, not if he would be someday. And yet he continued to march and he continued to preach and he continued to speak because he knew who held the power of life and death. And he wasn't afraid. The Russian dissident Alexander Solzhenitsyn, which, by the way, is the most terrifying name to say on a platform. If, you're under, if you know who he is, he was, a, he was outspoken critic of the Russian government, and he was locked in a gulag in prison. And this is what he wrote about the idea of fear and power. He said, from the moment you go to prison, you must put your cozy past firmly behind you. At the very threshold, you must say to yourself, my life is over. A little early to be sure, but there's nothing to be done about that. I shall never return to freedom. I am condemned to die now or a little later. I no longer have any property whatsoever. For me, those I love have died, and for them, I have died. From today on, my body is useless and alien to me. Only my spirit and my conscience remain precious and important to me. Confronted by such a prisoner... 
the interrogator will tremble. Only the man who has renounced everything can win that victory. Only the one who has denied himself and picked up his cross, is how Jesus would say it, can win that victory. Fear no longer has a hold on you or me. Maybe the reason Jesus said pick up your cross is because he wanted us to live lives where we understood whose rule and reign we're actually living under. It seems, by the way, that this is what the early Christians knew. One of the things that's almost comical to read is if you ever read about early Christian history, the Romans couldn't stand the Christians because they couldn't stop the Christians. And so they'd catch a few of them and they'd be like, you know what we're going to do with you? We're going to feed you to wild animals and we're going to have an entire crowd there cheering it on as they rip you limb from limb. And they would go into the arena singing, saying, oh, I'm so glad that I'm worthy of being murdered on behalf of the name of Jesus. And you could almost like see the emperors like, uh uh-huh, it's not how it's supposed to go. (laughs) Or they would crucify them. And as legend has it, when St. Peter was crucified, he said, do not crucify me in the same way my Lord was crucified. So they crucified him upside down. Or you have uh, uh, St. John Chrysostom that when he was asked to deny Jesus, he said, 85 years I've served my Lord and King. How could I deny him now? On and on and on and on, you had this little group of people who were living on the outskirts in the fringes of society and an entire empire couldn't shut them down because they said, oh, the cross, that's all you got? Here, let me pick that up for you. What would it be like to live a life like that? Where we're actually totally and truly liberated from fears where we go, no, 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 no. There's nothing to lose. There's nothing to lose. I've lost it all. I've denied it all. Oh, me? Yeah, there's nothing to hide. I'm being as brutally honest with myself and about myself as possible. Yeah, I have nothing to prove to anyone because I already understand that I'm a beloved child of the Almighty God. I have nothing to fear. People like that are considered dangerous by the powers who believe that they hold life and death in their hands. I wonder what would it look like for you if you began to say, yeah, there's nothing to fear. Let's go back to the cross and let's like remember what we do think about it. Remember Jesus went to the cross and then He resurrected three days later. There's actually a hint of it in the verses we just read that most people, including myself, often miss. Jesus didn't say, I'm going to be condemned to die and executed, and that's it. He said, I'm going to be condemned to die and executed, and then three days later, I'll rise again. You see, the reason that we and the early Christians can have this confidence and say we no longer have to live with fear is because we recognize there is, in fact, something called the resurrection, That's the good news. The bad news is you need to die for there to be a resurrection. But there is new life to be found in picking up the thing that terrifies you most, looking it right in the eye and saying, you no longer have power over me. So maybe this morning, the words that we need to leave with is simply this, pick up your cross. Pick up your cross and discover what it's like to actually live 
Pick up your cross and remember who holds the power of life and death. And it's not Caesar. Pick up your cross and discover life. You see, it's this truth of death bringing life that we proclaim together every time we participate in Eucharist. When we come to Eucharist, we have the body of Christ which is broken for us. We have the blood of Christ which is spilled for us. And in this broken body and in this shed blood, we consume that and say, this brings us life. That it's through this death that we remember that we celebrate the life that we've been given. This is why Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, while they were eating, he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to his disciples, saying, take and eat, this is my body. Then he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, drink from it, all of you. This is the blood of the covenant which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. And we invite you, as you're ready, to come and to participate in this meal that remembers death, yet gives life. This meal which tells all of us there is nothing to fear. This meal which says to everyone, come and eat, because this is the table of Christ, not the table of Denver Community Church. This meal that says, don't forget, who holds the power of life and death. Amen. Amen.